All right. Um, tonight is going to be just a little bit different than what we normally do. We, we've been going through the Old Testament for some time now. We've, we've been going through for several, well, probably several years, I guess it has been, we've been going through the Old Testament. But remember where we started with all this? We started with systematic theology. We started going through who is God and how do we know who he is. And so that was all the way back at the very beginning. I think when I first got here, that was the, basically the first thing that we did was start talking about how do we understand God? Who is he? How has he revealed himself? Can we trust the Bible? Can we trust the message of the Bible? And things like that. Now, I want to, when, when we got a little ways in, we, we, we said, okay, God has revealed himself and he has worked through the Old Testament and the New to bring us to understanding of who he is and how he has saved us. Right? But what is systematic theology? What is that? For some people, it's a curse word, to be honest with you. For some people, it represents a kind of area of study we never go into, or it's uh, the boring aspects of church when you say systematic theology. But what is it, and why do we do it? It's an open question. I'm, I'm curious. What is systematic theology? Hear murmurs. <laughs> All right. <laughs> it's a book that Groot, Wayne Grudemore wrote. All right. There's many different systematic theologies written by many people, but yeah, so that's what. What does it do? What, what is its purpose? Okay, how? Okay. Okay. Now, how does it go about doing that? There's a particular way, systematic theology. When you look on the shelf and it says systematic theology, you automatically should know how that book is going to demonstrate who God is. How does it do that? Some people will describe it as what puts God in a box. That's not at all what systematic theology is trying to do. What does it do? Does anybody know? Systematic theology, very basically, is trying to take all of the scriptures and put them in a group together. All the scriptures that are similar. So, for instance, if you took God's omnipotence, which is his all power, he's all powerful, right? If you took God's omnipotence, systematic theology is trying to take all the scriptures that tell us that God is omnipotent and put it together in a group so that we can see all of the scriptures that talk about God's omnipotence. And then, typically, the author of the systematic theology makes a comment about what we can learn through these scriptures. See, this scripture says this about his omnipotence, and then this scripture says that about his omnipotence. And from this whole picture, we get an understanding, an idea, a more complete idea of what the Bible says about God's omnipotence. So very basically, you've got many scriptures we could point to, but this is kind of riddled throughout the scriptures, but Christ actually tells us this. Uh, John 5, 39, he says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. So he's telling them that in the Scriptures, the Scriptures bear witness to Christ. All of them. And in fact, do, do, you would probably remember on the road to Emmaus, um, in Luke chapter 24, verses 26 to 27, uh, he says this. He, he's, he, he is resurrected, and he's walking on the road to Emmaus, and there are two disciples of his that see him on the road, and they don't recognize him. And the, the disciples are lamenting about the fact that Christ has died. And they're very sad about it because they really thought that this was the one. And he tells them, do you not know that the Christ was supposed to die? And then he tells them this in verse 26 and 27 in Luke chapter 24. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses... And all the prophets, 
He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. So in this, we have two disciplines that we can see. First, the Scriptures are testifying to us who God is. So in the Scriptures, we actually read them because we're trying to understand rightly who God is. That's why sometimes on Wednesday night, we, we sort of strain a gnat a little bit. And I, I do that to a degree on purpose, not to frustrate you or anything like that. But it's because we want to understand precisely who God is. And it's only by diving into the actual text that's presented in front of us that we can understand that. And by growing to understand who God is, we gain life. It's then that our worship becomes significant. We come together on Sunday morning and we worship a God that we know, not a God that's foreign to us. We know Him because we're studying actually who He is. But in this is also another discipline called biblical theology. Biblical theology? Not systematic theology where we group all the things together in a, in a kind of a column. Biblical theology is where we take all of those themes and we run them through all the books of the Scripture. So we take one thing like fear or uh, the fear of God, let's say, and we trace that theme as it appears all throughout Scripture. Or one, obviously big one, is the Messiah, the one who is coming to save. It's not good enough if we just read the Gospels and we go, so see here, Jesus came to save. We want to go all the way back to the book of Genesis, and we want to see how Adam and Eve have fallen and are in need of a Savior. And then we want to look at Genesis chapter 3, where God actually says, but it's not always going to be so. There's going to be one coming who's going to crush your head, serpent, and you're going to bite his heel. We call that the first gospel. And that, that represents a theme running through the Scriptures that find its way all the way to Revelation. Or, or here's another one. How about in Genesis we see the tree of life in the middle of the garden, right? In the middle of Scriptures, you see the tree that Christ was hung on, the tree that represents the curse. But by the end of the book, what do you get? By the end of the book in Revelation, you get another tree of life sitting there in the new heavens and new earth. You see the, the Garden of Eden at the beginning of Genesis chapter 3 where the Adam and Eve are removed from the garden. And why are they removed? Because they let in an unclean serpent. But by the end of Revelation, what do you see when Christ sits on His throne on the new heavens and new, in the new earth that represents the new Garden of Eden? The gates are always open. And you might think, well, well the gates are always open. Then unclean things can come in. And it says, John says, no unclean thing will ever enter it. Right? Why? Because the new Adam is on the throne and he's going to make sure the garden is completely clean at all times, unlike the original Adam, right? This is called biblical theology. You take a theme and you trace it through Scripture, and I can almost guarantee you, if anything really gets your gears turning, it's going to be biblical theology, right? It's fun to see how all of these themes end up coming together in the end of the book. So, the point of saying all of that is to say that even though systematic theology and biblical theology can sometimes be taxing on the mind and difficult to wrap our heads around, they are necessary for our understanding of who God actually has revealed Himself to be. Now, the reason it's also important is because you get passages that pop up from time to time in Scripture that seem a little off. They seem a little weird. Difficult to understand. Things that you read, and on the first read, you're like, well, how can that be right? And then you look at this other scripture over here, and it seems to say the exact opposite of what this scripture says. And it's those that present to us a little bit of a challenge, difficulty. Now, we've been going through the Old Testament, as I say, and then we stopped, and we've kind of been trying to put the prophets of the Old Testament in uh, chronological order as we've gone through Old Testament history. And so we, I stopped when we got to the book of Isaiah, and the reason I did that is because Isaiah, I think, is one of the most important books in especially all the Old Testament, for sure, but really all the, the Bible. It's difficult to understand Revelation without understanding at least Isaiah, probably Ezekiel and Daniel as well, but at the very least understanding Isaiah. 
John borrows so much language from the book of Isaiah, so it's really important to wrap our minds around it. So we spent a few weeks going through just the, the structure, how the book flows, but then I wanted to come back and tackle some of these passages that are maybe a little bit more challenging or a little more, more difficult or may make us think a little bit harder. And so two weeks ago, which was the last time we met, we talked about Satan, the satanic figure that's often interpreted in Isaiah chapter 14, which, uh, according to the context of Isaiah, it doesn't seem to be talking about Satan. And for the rest of the Bible's matter, it doesn't really seem to be talking about Satan either. So this week, I want to go into Isaiah chapter 38. And I want you to just look at the first six verses. Isaiah 38. It's actually included in the packet that's in front of you. And I'm sorry, an extra page printed out and didn't actually mean for that to happen, but there it is. Um, it's Isaiah 38, 1 to 6. It's on page 4 of 5 in your packet here. And uh, I'll give you a second to turn there before we read it. And um, maybe you'll spot the problem initially, and, and maybe you won't. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die, you shall not recover. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, Please, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Then the word of the Lord came to him, uh, came to Isaiah, Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of David your father, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add fifteen years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and will defend this city. Now, you might remember that Hezekiah has done some shady deals in his day. And one of the shady things that he's done is he has hosted a group of Babylonians, and he has shown them all the treasures in the temple. He has... Uh, he has to some extent, walks faithfully with the Lord, but there are occasions where he is tempted to uh, try to seek help from someone else. And this often gets Hezekiah in quite a bit of, of hot water. In fact, in the book of Isaiah, just before we get to Hezekiah, Isaiah condemns all the people of Israel for doing exactly what we see Hezekiah do right here at the end of this first section of Isaiah. And so, Hezekiah, when you read what he's doing, you go, well, are you an idiot? Do you not see that God is sparing your life, and yet you continue to turn to these nations for help? And so, Hezekiah has been um, a bit of a problem. Now, the reason that this passage presents for us a little bit of a challenge is because there's some other scriptures that seem to say this doesn't happen. For instance, we believe and we know from, again, systematic theology, categorizing all these scriptures, pulling them all together, that God is immutable. What does immutable mean? Unchanging. God doesn't change, right? So let's take a look at a couple of these passages that say this. I mean, I've, I've got them all listed there. We won't read all of them, but they're, they're there. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. Or how about Psalm 46, 9-11? He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. 
For I do not, look at Malachi 3 6, for I do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Um, James 1 7, this is also a New Testament deal. Every good gift and every perfect gift come, is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Uh, I mean, we could go on and on about his decrees that they have no, they, they don't change. What he sets before the foundation of the world comes to pass. I mean, there's so many that, that are like this throughout the scriptures, and they're listed there for you, that we understand God to be immutable. He's unchanging. But what do we see here in Isaiah? He says, uh, Hezekiah, I'm gonna, you're going to die. Set your affairs in order. Get your will together and make sure it's notarized because your kids are going to need it tomorrow. And then Hezekiah prays and he goes, you know what? I'll add 15 years to your life. That looks like a change, doesn't it? It appears to be a change. And so what do we do with this? Um, Herman Babnick, if it jumps past, I want to read this statement and just think about it for a second. You have to mull, mull it over. Herman Babnick is a... a well, he's one of those theologians that write, writes a bunch of systematic theologies and things like that. But he says this, The doctrine of God's immutability, his unchanging nature, is of the highest significance for religion. The contrast between being and becoming marks the difference between creator and creature. Now, that may sound like a really tough thing to wrap your head around, but just bear with me. Here it goes. He says, every creature is continually becoming. It is changeable, constantly striving, seeks rest and satisfaction, and finds this rest in God, in Him alone, for only He is pure being and no becoming. Hence, in Scripture, God is often called the rock. You understand that? You wrap your mind around that for a second. It's something you have to kind of pause and reread several times. But if you think about it for just a second, he's saying, look, God's immutable nature is one of the biggest things that separates God the Creator from us, His creatures. We're fickle. We change. We grow. We become something different tomorrow than we were yesterday. God, though, is unchanging. It's because of that we can actually secure our hope and our future on Him. That's exactly what He tells the children of Israel, right? He says, I do not change, therefore you are not consumed. Because here's the reality. If God created you, and you sinned, and He said, alright, I'm going to save you, but He's a changing God, well, He's just as likely tomorrow to wipe you off the face of the earth. You understand that? You grasp that? We are dependent on Him being unchanging. Okay, so what do we do with this? When we talk about God being unchanging in His purposes, we may wonder about places in Scripture like this in Isaiah where God said that He would judge people, and then because of prayer or perhaps people's repentance or both, God relents and did not bring the judgment that he said he would. That's one example. There's a couple other examples um, in uh, Ezekiel, I'm uh, sorry, Ezekiel, uh, Exodus 32, 9 to 14. Listen to this one. Here we go. This one's going to even get a little bit, a little bit crazier here. And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and all 
uh, the, this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. Verse 14, here, here it is. And the Lord relented from, this, from the disaster that he had spoken uh, of bringing on his people. Jonah also, remember, walks into the land of Nineveh. And he says, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Sounds pretty emphatic to me. The king of Nineveh comes together with the people and says, hey, here's what we'll do. We'll fast. We won't even let the cows eat. And maybe, maybe, just maybe, when he sees all of that, he'll not kill us. And that's exactly what happened. They repented. God relented. In fact, in some translations in Exodus, in the Exodus passage, it says God changed his mind. Well, what do we do with that? Because especially when you go up to uh, verse, or 1 Samuel 15, 29. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret. The glory of Israel is God. He will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. That's, that word regret is the, the same word that we see also in Genesis chapter 6, verse 6. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Well, sometimes you wish the Bible would just make up its mind. Which one is it? Does he not regret or does he have regret? So when we talk about God's unchanging purposes, it can sometimes bring to mind these things where there's prayer and repentance and, and God relents of the things that he, he promised to do. So when it comes to these passages like this, um, where he's withdrawing from the judgment that he's threatened, like the prayer of Moses there, or uh, the 15 years added to the life of Hezekiah, or perhaps the failure to bring about judgment upon Nineveh when the people repented. Are these not cases where God's purposes that he stated very clearly uh, did in fact change? Seems as though that's what's happening. There are also, that's purposes and change. There are also cases in the scriptures as I've just read where God is said to be sorry that he had carried out a previous action. We saw Genesis 6, 6, and then we also see in um, 1 Samuel uh, 15, 10 to 11, the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned his back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and cried. Now, just pay attention to this real quick, would you? Look at the verse reference that I just read. Very end of your verse references there, 1 Samuel 15, 10 to 11. Now go up to the 1 Samuel passage at the top of the page, 1 Samuel 15, 29. The glory of Israel does not, will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Are you following? That's, that's 20 verses later, not even 20 verses later. Does the author of 1 Samuel come back and say, he doesn't regret? He's not a man that he should have regret. He regrets that he made Saul. He doesn't regret. All right. You get the idea. There are times where it, it just perplexes us. It's, it's difficult. There, there are also several potential pitfalls that we can fall into in misinterpreting these passages, especially in light of clear, uh, clear, clearer passages elsewhere in Scripture, like the ones that we've read, that clearly affirm that God does not change. So how do we avoid falling into these kinds of pitfalls? Believe it or not, people will turn to these passages and they'll try to make arguments from them that aren't really there, that that's not what's being said. Um, first, um, uh, wait, wait, hold on, where am I at? Passages, uh, passages that affirm God's repentance seem to suggest that the plan of God does not stand firm and sure, but is subject to change in response to the happenings on earth. Do you understand that there's a problem there? Some people don't. When they, re when they hear that, they don't understand that there's a problem with that way of thinking. That God's purposes and His plans change as a response to the things that are on earth. There's a big problem there, all right? How could God, who is all-knowing, all-wise, and all-powerful, 
change because he came upon what better wisdom new information what is he learning that would cause him to change his plan surely we don't believe that we don't believe that it's not christian to believe that okay but there are people that plenty of people that make this argument all right the reason that this is a problem is it contradicts clear passages of scripture like what we've read in first samuel but second, that's contradicts in that blank. I'm going to move on to the next one. Contradicts. But second, it forms the basis of what we call open theism. Or open theology. Openness theology. Open theism or openness theology. This says that decisions that are not yet made do not exist anywhere to be known even by God. Decisions that you haven't come to yet do not exist anywhere to be known even by God. Now, typically, we, we tend to think about God as kind of outside of time. Inside and outside of time, right? We, we, we think of him that way. That he's unaffected by time. If you could think about it like this, that essentially God would be looking at a film strip where all of the events are here. He sees all of them at once. Yes? Isn't that kind of how we've grown to think about God? Well, what this is saying, what open theology is saying, is that God only sees what happened in the past, and he sees the current frame we're on. Nowhere in existence is any part of the film strip that exists in the future that, that, that he can see. It's known even to him. So what that means is that God is learning all the time. What I wrote there, what is in the packet there, is a direct quote from someone that calls themselves a Christian. You understand this? So do you understand at least what's at stake? why it's important that we understand what these passages are saying and what they're not. Because uh, Mr. Tillich here, who wrote this, can, will actually make an argument, a very compelling argument, using the scriptures we've just read about God changing to make this argument about how we understand God. Well, this is who he is. He gets new information, and he changes in light of what happens on earth. Well, you do a thing, and then he reacts to it. Do you understand what difficulty that presents when a sovereign God who oversees all, who is all-knowing, infa uh, infallible, inerrant, perfect in every way, reacts and changes his nature to sinful creatures? Do you understand why that's a problem? This is yes, this is no. You get that. It's significantly problematic. And what does it lead to? It leads to open theology, open theism. That's exactly what we're describing here, open theism. This is where our systematic theology can really help us because we can grow broader and we can start to understand how all of these things uh, fit together or how we understand these things. So to understand these passages we have to take into account that all of Scripture, um, all of Scripture and, uh, oh, sorry, we have to take into account all of Scripture and work under the assumption of the inerrancy and infallibility of the Bible. So, number one premise, which is where we began several years ago, a foundation that has to be laid is that this book that's laying in front of you is inerrant and infallible. Now, Tillich would say that it's not, of course, naturally. But we believe that it is. It's inerrant and it's infallible. Why do we believe that? Why do we believe that the Bible is necessarily inerrant and infallible? Because it comes from whom? God. It's breathed out by God. It's able to correct. It's able to train in righteousness. It's able to reprove. It's able to encourage. It's able to build up. It's able to do all those things precisely because it comes from the mouth of God. 
So we believe that the Bible is inerrant and infallible, I'm going to make a caveat here, in its original manuscripts. The reason that I say that is because when Moses, writing the, the first five books of the Bible, or Matthew, writing the Gospel of Matthew, or John, or whomever is writing the books of the Bible as they're compiling them, the original manuscript that they put down on paper is inerrant and infallible because it comes from God himself. Now, subsequent to that, we've copied this thing a trillion times. We've done all kinds of things, and we know where there are discrepancies in some of these little manuscripts. But what we're saying about the Bible is that when you trace this back to its original manuscripts, it's inerrant and infallible. And what we believe about the text we have in front of us is that we can trust it, because we know where those little discrepancies are. All right. So, um, we build on that foundation. If that's not true, you understand. If that's not true, then everything that we're doing here today or on Sunday is worthless. It's meaningless. It doesn't matter. It absolutely does not matter if the word that God gave to us is not inerrant and infallible, able to correct us and train us in righteousness. Get that? So we have to build off that foundation. And invariably, any time where you come upon these cults that spring up or false doctrines that are here or there, I, I can almost guarantee you somewhere at the root of all of that is someone that believes the Bible that they have in front of them is not trustworthy because it's not inerrant or infallible. Jehovah's Witness, Mormons, the list goes on. Open theists, all of them are going to question the inerrancy and the infallibility of Scripture. All right. And they're going to point to things like this. Well, God doesn't change. Well, He changes. God was sorry, but he does, He's not sorry. Right? They're going to point to things like that and say, well, there it is. Now, do you really believe, just as a side note, do you really believe that the author of 1 Samuel sat down and just forgot what he wrote 20 verses earlier? I mean, really? Do we really think that someone is just that not with it? Okay, anyway, that's an aside. That's free. Um, so, these instances uh, uh, where, where God is doing this, where he's interacting, where he tells Hezekiah, you're going to die, get your affairs in order, Hezekiah prays, that these instances where God says this to Hezekiah through the prophet Isaiah, these are true expressions of God's present attitude or intention. So in other words, God's not lying to him. He's telling him the truth. Hezekiah, you're going to die. Now, he may not be giving him all the information, but he is telling him the truth. You're going to die. You need to put your affairs in order. Jonah's preaching to the people of Nineveh probably gives us the clearest example of this, where God's intention, God's original intention when he's speaking to them is true. Yet, what he doesn't tell them is what circumstances might be present for a different outcome to be produced. He doesn't give them all the information, in other words. We can see this, obviously, clearly in Jonah, where Jonah walks into the middle of the city, and he says, yet 40 days, um, if, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, when it doesn't happen, or when Hezekiah's life is extended by 15 years, we, we don't hear the phrase at the end of that, now, if you repent, things will be different. Also, if we did have that little phrase, Hezekiah, people of Nineveh, if you repent, this will all be different. If we had that phrase at the end, we wouldn't think anything about God. It's changing nature, would we? We would think God presented them with all the information they needed to make the decision. God moved and worked in the people, and they repented, and then he relented of the disaster, because he said that's what would happen. So it wouldn't call into question his knowledge of future events. It would be God basically preaching to the people the same way a preacher would preach to a congregation. Repent, therefore. In fact, it would be apparent that God had commanded such preaching from his prophet. He had told Isaiah, go tell them that they need to repent. And, and if Hezekiah 
turns from his ways, repents or calls on me in prayer earnestly, then I won't kill him. We would think God had commanded his prophet to go and preach those kinds of things to him. The situations with Hezekiah and with the intercession of Moses are similar. God had said that he would send judgment, and that was a true declaration, and it was provided that the situation remained the same. But implicit in the proclamation of him telling Moses, of him telling Jonah to go preach, or him telling Isaiah to go tell Hezekiah, that all of those things, implicit in all of those things, was God's forgiveness or restoration following intercessory prayer. Following Hezekiah calling out in prayer. It's not God changing his mind. It's God not giving all the information up front. Hezekiah coming to that conclusion all on his own. Or whomever. So in these cases of God being sorry that he, he made man or that he made Saul king, I think these two can also be understood as expressions of God's pre- pleasant dis- present displeasure. That's hard to say. For the sinfulness of man. So in each of these cases, that's displeasure. In each of these cases, we shouldn't think that at any point, if God could go back and do it all over again. That's not how we read these passages of Scripture. There's far too many Scriptures to take into account if we're doing our systematic theology correctly. There's far too many scriptures that come into play that say, no, he doesn't change. That's not the kind of God he is. So if you're reading that into a passage that's there that seems like that, it's in blatant contradiction of the other scriptures. Or, perhaps, it means something different. None of this is to suggest that if God could go back and do it all over again, he would make a different decision. Because what would that mean about God? Well, I've come upon some better knowledge. Now that, I, now that I know, I do this all the time with COVID, with 2020. Knowing what I know now, there's a lot of things I would do differently over the last two years. Probably we're all in that boat to one degree or another. Knowing what I know now, man, I would do so many things differently. Of course I would. I don't have that ability, right? None of us do. Do we believe about God that that's who he is? That he, that he comes to a situation with Saul being made king and he goes, man, knowing what I know now, if I could go back, I would do it all over again and I would do it differently. Of course not. What we see here is not God deciding to make a different plan or regretting that he had done this or that, and would rather have it a different way. No, what we see is him mourning over the sinfulness of man, that this is the state that mankind is in. What do we see right before God regretting that he had made man in Genesis chapter 6, verse 6? You go back just a few verses earlier, you see mankind, evil is spread all over the world, and mankind only does what is evil continually. makes him lament. Breaks his heart. Makes him sad that this is the state of the affairs that the world is in. You see, it's important that we understand who God actually is. Because when we get to passages in Scripture, where we get to like Hezekiah in Isaiah 38, it helps us to go, wait a minute. Let's understand what's really happening here. How do I take an inerrant and infallible word that's in front of me that in the rest of the Scriptures tells me God doesn't change? And how do I see, how do I understand this passage here in Isaiah? Well, we don't take the passage in Isaiah and overthrow the rest of the Scriptures. We take the rest of the Scriptures and help us interpret this passage in Isaiah. Does that make sense? Believe it or not, It's actually important that we understand this, especially for what we're going to go into in future days. Questions? Bound to be some. Systematic theology? Come on. Charlie, and then we'll go to James. 
Oh, yeah. But, it, but it's not... So here's where, here's where these problems exist. They, they're not... No, no one's going to sit in my office and say, I'm an open theist. No one's going to do that. But people are going to have... There's a trickle-down process from the academy, right? You're seeing this now. Uh, critical theory. Well, critical, all kinds of critical theories, but critical race theory is the one that you know of probably most prominently right now. You know that's been around for 50, 60, 70 years. Do you know where it started? It started in the academy. And what starts in the academy takes about 50 years or so, but it, it starts to do this, and it trickles down. And it happens that with critical race theory, the name just came down with it, and everybody calls it the same thing. That's often not the case in theology. Most of the time, open theology starts over here, and then by the time it trickles down into the pew, people don't know how prayer works. And they sit down and they go, yeah, you, prayer changes things. Prayer changes God's mind. Wait a minute. That's open theology. But it impacts the way we think about prayer. Well, now I pray, and God changes situations and circumstances. And that's how we think about it. When that's very obviously not how the Bible actually presents prayer. First of all, it's communication with God. Second, it is the motivation that He uses from His people to accomplish His purposes. So He works in them to pray, and that motivates His judgment. That's how He's ordered the prayer to work. We see this most clearly in Revelation where prayers of the saints are under the altar in Revelation chapter 6. They pray, How long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood on the earth? They're killed for the testimony. And God says, Wait a little while longer. Well, the prayers of the saints under the altar come back all the way in chapter, I believe it is 15, where the bowls come out and the bowls are poured out and it says specifically that the bowls are the prayers of the saints. Right? The judgment's coming. It's coming. What motivates the judgment? All the prayers. Right? It's not changing. It's how God has ordered His sovereign plan to be carried out. It's through the prayers of His people. So it helps us understand. But where open theology has influenced people is now we're confused about how prayer works. How it works in our life. How it works in God's so that's, that's kind of how things, you know, change. Does that make sense? hope that answers your question. Sure. Well, I think, yeah, and I, and I think there's, there's a, you know, issue when we come to Arminian theology, which, you know, uh, I understand some, everybody's on some varying spectrum of, you know, and some people are like, well, I don't even know what Arminian theology is, and that's fine. Um, but some, a lot of people are on, on, that, on that spectrum. I, I will say that the care that you have to take, every, every uh, system or thought process or way of interpreting Scripture, or lens that you're looking through to interpret Scripture, has its issues. And it can all end in abhorrent theology. And uh, Arminian theology can end, if you're not careful, in open theism. And so, every open theist is an Arminian at, at root. So, you, you just, you have to be very careful. And what I sometimes will hear as we're discussing the scriptures and the interpretation of scriptures, as sometimes I will hear from Arminians, is not Arminian theology, but open theism, which is a huge problem. So that's another way it does manifest itself. Yeah. James, do you have a question? Or yes, I can answer. Uh,
Right. 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 Yeah. I mean, it, you know, we, we see, you'll see some of this also at the root of prosperity gospel. I had a, had a Bible teacher when I was in sixth grade um, say the phrase and see if, you, see if you'll also gasp when you hear this. God just wants to please us. That, that passed the sniff test? I mean, that's another way open theism makes its way down into an, a theology that's abhorrent. God exists to please me? It's upside down. It's exactly the opposite. You, you, yeah. You reverse some of those nouns and you might have a good statement. <laughs> you put this, the same as it's read, God pleasing me. That, uh, uh, me pleasing God. Okay, that, that's, that's better. But, but you see how it's important so systematic theology, biblical theology, they're not to replace our reading of the Scriptures. They, they help us read the Scriptures better, right? We can't reject these. And invariably, we talk about different, way, different understanding of salvation, different understanding of the way God works, different understanding of the church and things like this. And invariably, when we're strayed, there's whole passages of Scripture that we're just omitting entirely from consideration. And that's what systematic theology helps us to do, is kind of say, what is the picture of God? What, what is a better view of God that we should really have here? How should we understand who he has revealed himself to be in the scriptures? This is what Jesus is showing to his, to his disciples on the road to Emmaus. This is what he's telling the Pharisees in John chapter 5. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have life, but you don't realize they tell about me. Everything is about Him. So it's our job to search the Scriptures to understand who God is truly. And it does us no good to camp out on one verse and park on that one and say, this is who God is, and neglect verses altogether, other verses altogether. It's important to understand, to take in the whole counsel of God and understand who He really is. That's the only way we grow as Christians. Other questions? James? Prosperity gospel? Yeah. <laughs> I think, uh, I think the, um, in situations like that, the counsel of Jesus where he's basically telling the disciples when you're not received in the town, just leave the town, shake the dust off your sandals, and, you know, it's condemnation against that. that that's typically, you know, when from the top down throughout the entire organization is theology or an understanding of Scripture that is false, false, false gospel is being preached, and it's being tolerated in the pews and promoted even, that's, that's where you, you leave and take as many people with you as you can, as you can muster. That's that's the condemnation. That's that's really it. Yeah, yeah. It's a bit like approaching a president. Uh, I mean, that's the situation we're in with the prosperity gospel. Is uh, it, it again is probably not exactly stemming from open theology, but there, there's some openness in the theology there. Um, which my Bible teacher in sixth grade was one of those, um, that, you know, it's, it's um, the situation we're in is, is really to just combat it with the preaching of the real gospel. Um, 
it's everywhere all over Africa. You, you understand, it is the biggest export of America in terms of Christianity is the prosperity gospel. They, they, every, uh, uh, an African preacher may not even have a Bible, but he's got either a Joel Osteen book, a Kenneth Hagin book, a, name it. I mean, he's got one of those prosperity gospel preachers books. Maybe even a couple of them that he's been handing out to his congregation. He's got a radio station that won't play nothing but Joel Osteen. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. Like, he, he doesn't even have a Bible, and he's got a Joel Osteen book. How, how can that be? <laughs> it doesn't seem like it would be possible, but it is. It's the greatest export of American Christianity is the prosperity gospel. The only way we combat that is we teach the true gospel. And we try to get it in as many hands as possible. So um, when Paul says taking every thought captive, that's what he's talking about. He's not talking about your own spiritual struggles in your own head, though I'm sure that would apply too. He's really talking about people that would come at him with different arguments, arguments that are contrary to the gospel, taking every thought captive with the word. How we do it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a time to gather together to really think deeply about you, and I pray that this would be helpful that as we take into account who you really are, that it might help us and sharpen our instincts as we read the text of Scripture, that it might broaden our reading, that, we, that through it we really might just strive to understand more of who you are. And, um, and so I pray that you would do that in us, and that this might also be edifying, understanding that you are the sovereign God of the universe, that we serve you and that there is no shadow or variation of change in you. And because of that, we are not consumed. Because of that, we can trust you, that you are true to your promises, and that you, the outstanding promises that are still, that still remain, that Christ is to come and redeem us, and, and we will dwell with him forever. That, that's, that is going to come to fruition be, precisely because you do not change. We pray that we would be encouraged by those words in Jesus' name. Amen.